Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey there, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. Happy Halloween. Happy Sunday hope you're doing okay out there. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, and I am very excited about today's episode. Uniquely excited to have Emily Ladau as my guest. She is the author of a book called Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. I should note that this is a bit of a departure for the program. Emily Ladau is not a quote-unquote literary author, at least not yet. Her book is educational in nature, rather than a novel or a memoir or some such. And I should also point out that this is a personal issue for me, as I am the father of a child with disabilities. My son River was born with cerebral palsy. He has limited movement on his left side. Fortunately, he can walk. That's been very exciting. Watching him get up on his feet. It's a little bit harrowing. <laughs> but uh, we're really proud of him. He's doing great. But he's also, objectively speaking, got a lot to deal with. More so than the average kid his age, to say the least. And it's been a big learning curve for me as a human being, as a parent. And with that in mind, you can probably understand why a book like Demystifying Disability is important to me. I needed it. Even as the uh, parent of a disabled child, I have so much to learn. Even after reading De Demystifying Disability, I have a lot to learn. But what this book is, is a very friendly primer. It gives an overview. 
it gets you started on the road to learning about this stuff, understanding it, developing greater awareness and empathy and communication skills, and so on and so forth. And so I hope you'll listen to this episode. Emily Ladau is a uniquely gifted speaker and advocate for this community. And I was blown away talking to her. And I hope as well that you will pick up a copy of her book and educate yourself. It's a quick read, and it contains a lot. It really helped me understand where I can improve, what I need to know, what I might not be seeing, this kind of thing. And this isn't a fringe issue. That's another important point. 15% of the global population is estimated to be disabled. 15%. Among other things, demystifying disability helps the reader learn to appreciate disability history and identity, how to recognize and avoid ableism, which is the discrimination toward disabled people that we see too often in our world. It teaches the reader how to be mindful of good disability etiquette, how to think and talk and ask questions about disability. It teaches the reader how to ensure that accessibility becomes standard practice rather than a rarity, whether it's in the context of everyday communication or planning events be they work-related or personal. And finally, it teaches how to identify and speak out about disability stereotypes that, again, all too often permeate our culture, especially our media culture. So I should underline, again, that I, I myself am just learning about this stuff. Just beginning the process of wrapping my head around it. And as you're going to hear in my conversation with Emily, I'm imperfect. I make mistakes all the time. She herself admits to making mistakes when it comes to language use, things of this nature. So if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, oh God, I'm going to listen to this conversation and feel bad about myself, please know that that is not the point. It's not the point of the book. It's not the point of this conversation. And Emily is great about welcoming people to the fold. And she's very patient, both with me and with her readers and with everybody, as she tries to advocate for the disability community and make the world a better place. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of The Swank Hotel the acclaimed novel by Lucy Corin. The Swank Hotel has been the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. You can sign up for that at TheNervousBreakdown.com. You get a book delivered to your door every month, and I interview the authors on this program. You can hear my conversation with Lucy Corin, author of The Swank Hotel, from just this past week in episode 735. 
One more time, that's The Swank Hotel, the new novel by Lucy Corin, available from Grey Wolf Press. So, again, my guest today is Emily Liddell. She is a passionate disability rights activist, a writer, a storyteller, consultant. Her career began at the age of 10 when she appeared on several episodes of Sesame Street to educate kids about life with a physical disability. You're going to hear us talk about that. Emily is the editor-in-chief of the Rooted in Rights blog, and she is the co-host of the Accessible Stall podcast with Kyle Kachadurian, a podcast that deals with issues within the disability community. Please know, too, that a full written transcript of today's conversation with Emily Ladau is available at this podcast's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to read a transcript, you're welcome to. Okay, so one more time. My guest today is Emily Ladau, author of the book Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally, available right now from 10 Speed Press. Here she is, folks. This is Emily Liddell. I am a very passionate disability rights activist, and that stems from the fact that I was born with a physical disability called Larson syndrome. It's a genetic joint and muscle disorder, so my mother has it, her younger brother has it, and she found out while she was pregnant with me that she was going to pass it on, although she had been informed that she wouldn't pass it on. And a lot of people perceive that as incredibly tragic, but I actually find it to be one of the best parts of my life, having someone who really showed me the way as I navigated becoming an advocate for myself and embracing who I am as a disabled woman. So I am very much a strong believer in disability as an identity, as a culture, as a community, and that informs all of the work that I do. Wow. Yeah. And it makes, yeah, it makes sense to me that having a parent who is, uh, who has the same disability would be so helpful. <laughs> um, like just to have like a mentor, like obviously having a parent, you're going to have a, you know, an involved parent anyway, you're going to have a mentor no matter what, but that particular connection that you share with your mother, uh, had to be, um, I don't know, like just a unique connection to have and, a way for you to um, have somebody to model that lives with you. Like, I can't think of anything better, really, when it comes to uh, how to learn how to be in the world as a disabled person. There was always this built-in reminder that I was going to grow up and that I needed to speak up for myself in order for people to pay attention to what I had to say. And I recognize that it's a privilege, first of all, having somebody to model that for me. And second of all, a privilege that I do have the ability to speak up because not everybody communicates in the same way that I do when they have disabilities. And so I, I very much acknowledge that I come from a place of privilege in both of those senses. But at the same time, I actually also like to share the story. And my mom says this, too, that as much as she modeled advocacy, she was not herself really a part of the disability community. She was the one 
along with my father, who really got me involved in the disability community, but she herself was not connected until I started pulling her along, a little bit kicking and screaming at first. And I said, hey, this is not just about advocacy. This is about a community. And I want you to be a part of that with me. And so we've really been each other's teachers as I've grown up. And you as a child were on Sesame Street. I have to make sure to flag this. Uh, <laughs> so, because, I mean, this is something going back to, you know, when you were little uh, that you've been involved with, which is helping to bring awareness to, um, you know, issues related to disability and to, you know, as this one example uh, demonstrates, to help to foster positive and authentic representations of disabled people in mainstream media. So can you just talk, and plus as a child or as a guy who grew up watching Sesame Street, and I know, you know, you probably did too, like what a, what a thrill it must have been to be on the set. Can you just talk about your Sesame Street experience and indulge me? I was 10 years old when I appeared on Sesame Street. And so I think that a lot of what I learned is really reflecting on it and recognizing in hindsight that I had this immense opportunity to educate about my life with a physical disability on this national platform. But what's most powerful for me is that when I was little, I really didn't see much in the way of disability representation. And in fact, one of the only specific instances of representation that I very vividly recall is seeing a little girl using a wheelchair on Sesame Street. And I ended up becoming the person who filled that role on the show after her. And so there's so much power in seeing yourself reflected back at you. But for kids who are disabled, and especially kids who are multi-marginalized and disabled, right? I'm a white person who's a wheelchair user who appeared on the show. And that at the time was revolutionary. But now that we're continuing to progress and we're continuing to try to show more diverse representation of disability in the media, there's power in that. There's power in seeing that, yes, you too are a part of society. Yes, you too have humanity. And I think that we cannot understate the value of being able to see yourself just as another person on television. And that was how it felt for me when I was on Sesame Street. I was just another person hanging out with Elmo, hanging out with Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. And yes, we were talking about my disability, but we were doing it in a way that showed, hey, I'm just another kid in the neighborhood. I'm part of your community and I belong here just like you do. Hmm. Yeah, you talk about representation. I had uh, Ryan O'Connell on this show uh, several years ago, but he's kind of a pal. He lives in Los Angeles, and I know him a little bit. And uh, the stuff that he's been doing uh, in uh, Hollywood on television is pretty great. You know, talk about like intersectional, um, like an intersectional existence, if I'm using the term correctly, as like a gay, disabled man, um, you know, just to have him on TV and telling his own story is pretty awesome and overdue. Watching his show special on Netflix was 
kind of a revelation for me because I think we're finally moving beyond the point where disability is simply used as a plot point or as inspiration or as something that makes people grab a Kleenex. And we're now starting to look at disability from a more holistic point of view. Disability is one part of an entire human being. We have complex human experiences. And so seeing shows like Special and actors like Ryan O'Connell who are bringing their whole selves to their roles and who are saying, I'm disabled, I'm proud of that, but let's also talk about how that interplays with every other facet of who I am is incredibly powerful. And I'm so excited that we're moving in that direction. It's long overdue and we're not, 100% there yet by any means, but knowing that I am no longer part of a population that is completely relegated to the shadows when it comes to representation is something that has been nothing but a positive in terms of how I have continued to evolve in my identity. Wow. Yeah. And, I, you know, you talked about inspiration and the ways in which disabled people have traditionally been portrayed in our media and I, I, I think that is a nice opportunity to segue into talking about what you refer to in the book as inspiration porn. Um, can you explain that to people who are listening? I think it's kind of intuitive, but it's worth like dissecting it a little bit. I think that inspiration porn as a term really stops people in their tracks because the word porn immediately has negative associations for a lot of people, and it shouldn't. You know, there are certainly ways that pornography itself can be created in a positive and supportive atmosphere, but what we generally associate the term porn with is objectification. And so when we use the term inspiration porn in reference to disability, we're talking about how we often objectify disabled people for our own warm, fuzzy emotions. And so that happens when you see, for example, a headline that says, you know, a boy with Down syndrome crowned homecoming king or, you know, little girl with spina bifida comes in last place in the race but inspires everyone. And it's just these narratives that we create of overcoming that we wouldn't necessarily think of if someone was not disabled. My question always has been, would this same story become a clickbait headline if this person wasn't disabled? You know, somebody standing up at their wedding to dance after they're paralyzed, somebody walking across the stage at high school graduation, likely not a story if disability is not involved. And so Inspiration porn is a term that was popularized by Stella Young, whose TED Talk I highly recommend. It's called I'm Not Your Inspiration. Thank you very much. And she explains that we often exploit disabled people for the sake of making ourselves feel better or feel good about ourselves when we're not disabled. And that becomes an incredibly harmful narrative that follows disabled people around and completely denies the nuances of our humanity. And so in the book, I try to break down a couple of different types of inspiration porn. And there's a pretty good chance that many of the people who are listening to our conversation right now have probably 
shed a tear or two with them or have thought to share it on social media or have said, wow, this is a really lovely story to end an ugly news hour, you know, the six o'clock news. Then they put the story at the end of the news about someone who was in an accident and learns to walk again. And it's not that I begrudge that person. I'm not bitter about that. I think that personal achievements and moments of importance are wonderful and I want to celebrate them. But I don't want to do it simply because that person is disabled. Because to me, that's not looking at the whole human. And so inspiration porn is an overarching term to describe what we mean when we're talking about those types of stories. Yeah. And you also talk about how, you know, sometimes narratives around disability are couched as this overcoming of adversity and that, you know, if you just give it enough effort, you know, you can, you can make it. It's like that kind of like Horatio Alger, uh, kind of thing. And, um, or is it Horatio Alger? I never, I can't remember, but you know what I mean? I think it may be Alger, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I think the implication is that, you know, disability is a personal failure, you know, that's kind of embedded in that. And beyond that, whether it's inspiration porn or this overcoming adversity kind of narrative, it is a subtle way of reinforcing prejudices around disability, is it not? It absolutely is. And there's also this incredibly false understanding of disability as something that is wrong with a person and something that needs to be fixed or cured or eliminated. And we don't realize that when we're perpetuating these narratives of overcoming adversity, what we're really saying is, we live in a systematically inaccessible world, but that's your problem as a disabled person, and it's up to you to figure out how to navigate it. It's not up to everybody to figure out how to make the world a more welcoming and inclusive place. So when we boil it down to that, it's actually kind of frustrating because it's not that I'm overcoming adversity. In most cases, it's that I'm overcoming the inaccessible barriers that you have put in place that make my life harder. And that's not to say that I wouldn't still be disabled without those barriers in place. I am a wheelchair user. I have a medical diagnosis. This is part of me inherently and who I am. But when you say, okay, well, wouldn't you be less disabled if you just tried harder to walk or if you just tried harder to do something that makes you quote unquote closer to normal? No, I'd, I'd still be disabled the problem is not me. The problem is the barrier that you put in place. So while you're there judging me for who I am and thinking that something is wrong with me, my question to you is, isn't there really something wrong with the society that we live in if you're thinking that way? Right. Right. And, you know, too, I think a lot of people are, are made emotional and uncomfortable when they consider disability, they view it as uh, this terrible tragedy. And, you know, I say these things and I have to make sure to flag that like I myself am guilty of so many of the infractions that you articulate in your book. And so I think it's important for people listening to know that this is not a book that, I mean, I, I read it, I'm talking to you, uh, I'm speaking from experience here. I didn't feel shamed by your book. Um, but I did feel some sense of like self-derived personal shame as I reflected on my own behavior and attitudes through the years, because I have blind spots and I have a disabled child now, you know? And so 
my life has changed. My perspective on these things has necessarily changed. I just want listeners to know that like, you know, you're very good about being open to the fact that we have these blind spots and we make these mistakes and we have to work through them. I'd even challenge you, and I'm sure you'll love me for this, to think about the ableism behind the term blind spots, too. Oh, right. There you go. See, I just did that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and we're, and by the way, know, we're going we're gonna to spend an entire section of this conversation on language because this is a, you know, this is a writerly and readerly podcast. And so this is a real preoccupation of mine and a place of great learning. So we're going to get to all that. But there I am demonstrating my own ableism right there. But the thing is that I do it too, and I am disabled. I think that's exactly what I don't want to happen is people become so stuck in their own heads that they are afraid to talk about disability at all. And so on the one hand, yes, I want people to be more conscious of how they think about disability and talk about disability and engage with disabled people. But on the other hand, I don't want anybody to put down my book and think, oh, my God, I'm going to make so many mistakes that why even bother? Because the reality is everybody, myself included, as somebody who jokes that I'm a professional disabled person 24-7, still makes these mistakes. And so rather than further alienating people who may already be uncomfortable with disability simply because they've been socialized to understand disability as a negative thing, I would rather say, hey, it's okay. We have a lot of conscious unlearning that we need to do around ableism. And I want to welcome you into that process, recognizing that it's an evolution and not something that you're going to accomplish overnight or maybe ever fully because we're all constantly evolving human beings. We're all fallible human beings. And I think that's okay. So, yeah, you know, maybe take a moment to reflect on something that you've said or something that you've done that doesn't really feel very great. That was ableist that you wish that you hadn't done, but rather than hang your head in shame and just kind of give up, my hope is that people will say, okay, I now have a new starting point for conversation and for learning. And I want to engage in that knowing full well that it can be messy and an ongoing process. This speaks to um, your kind of overarching philosophy that you uh, talk about early in the book. I'm going to read it here, uh, if I may. Your, your philosophy is, quote, if the disability community wants a world that's accessible to us, then we must make ideas and experiences of disability accessible to the world. And I think that's a, a very wise approach. And that's definitely what your book is doing. There has to be a dialogue. There has to be, you know, some good faith acceptance that works in both directions. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, the, the abled community, if that's a way of putting it, is that a way of putting it? <laughs> I usually say the non-disabled community, but okay. abled works as well. Okay, yeah. Uh, needs to do a better job of engaging. And there has to be, if, if it's in good faith, I think what you're saying is that the disabled community needs to welcome people into the fold and have that dialogue. It's the only way we're going to make progress, right? If we're, if we're at odds or there's too much shame and emotional tumults surrounding it, it will be hard to move forward in an effective way. Absolutely. Though 
I would be remiss if I didn't reiterate what I said in the book right after I share that mantra that informs everything that I do, which is that I know my viewpoint on this is not always a popular opinion. There are people who get very frustrated by the fact that simply existing in a disabled mind or a disabled body means that you become somehow an inherently political statement just by existing and you become a constant teachable moment just by existing. And to be quite honest, I get exhausted too. I mean, not only am I disabled, but I work on this professionally. At the end of the day, I cannot take my wheelchair off, put it on a shelf and become non-disabled. So this is something that is with me all of the time. And it can be exhausting to do that educating. But I also firmly believe in not alienating people, because if we do, then no one's going to want to engage with us when we're saying, hey, here are actual, practical, meaningful ways that you can support us and you can make the world more accessible and inclusive. And so I want to meet people where they are. I really am not the type of person who wants to push you away and say, stop asking me questions and go Google it. And I know there are a lot of people like that, and I respect that. It's a lot of labor educating people about who you are as a human being. And it's a lot of labor to talk about these very deeply personal things. But at the same time, I very much believe that when we push people away who were honestly trying to have a well-intentioned conversation with you, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So that's where my advocacy point of view comes from, is that I want to have these conversations. I want to engage. I want to educate. I don't want to do it if you're being rude to me. I don't want to do it if you're being nosy and invasive. But at the same time, if you have a genuine question, yeah, let's have a conversation. I'm not going to yell at you. I don't bite, you know, and that's just me, though. I'm speaking for myself. I understand that not everybody wants to educate all the time. But for me, I want to bring you into that fold. Well, and you're a really effective communicator. Not only uh, do I say that having read your book, but talking to you, like you seem like you have the gift. So you're you're doing the, I feel like you're, you. you're in the right line of work. And I can say too, now that you've written and published this book, if you're exhausted from educating and people are, are asking you, you can just say, hey, buy my book. <laughs> it, <laughs> right? You have an out now. I mean, super convenient. Yeah, I can just pass off a copy of my book but at the same time that would almost undercut a lot of what I say in the book or try to convey in the book which is that I don't have all the answers and this is only a starting point and so I really encourage people not to just read this book put it on a shelf and say I was a good ally today I'm done you know my hope is that if you are just starting to learn about disability and you picked up this book You'll go to the back where there's further reading and resources, and you'll keep that process of learning going because I'm in no way the authority on disability, and the book is not the definitive guide to every disability and every disability experience in the entire world by Emily Ledow. You know, it's just demystifying a little bit about disability so that you have a place to start when you're unsure of where to start. Okay. So speaking of uh, a, a place to start, I'm going to shift now to ableism. I think this is a topic that has come to the fore more often in recent years. You know, it's it's certainly come to my attention in recent years. I guess it's part of it is, is my parental experience, but part of it I think is the culture. And 
I think it's worth defining uh, again, unless you have this stuff like at your at your recall. Um, I'll just I'll just read what you wrote so we can start with the definition. You, you define ableism as attitudes, actions, and circumstances that devalue people because they're disabled or perceived as having a disability, and this can manifest in so many different ways. Uh, some some of which are very subtle and ingrained in death you know, how we live and communicate and operate in the world. A hundred percent. And I also like to be clear that I tried to keep my definition relatively simple. There are some much more in-depth definitions that I really appreciate around ableism that also acknowledge the ways in which it connects with other forms of stigma and discrimination and oppression. But for me, I was trying to get to a very simple root of what ableism is because it's the term that I think is becoming more common, but one that people are not as quick to understand necessarily because it's been outside of our collective consciousness for so long. And I think that the pandemic actually has brought about a greater understanding of ableism, even if we don't have the language to articulate what it is that we're understanding. I think people are beginning to recognize simply from the way that the world is shifting in the way that we've had to change how we operate, that ableism is baked into the vast majority of our systems. And a perfect example of that is the fact that disabled people have been asking and asking for access to doing things remotely, whether it's telehealth or whether it's education from home, working from home, attending events from home. And we were told, no, 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 we can't do it. It's not going to work. It's a logistical nightmare. It's too expensive. And then all of a sudden, when the pandemic hit and everybody had to work from home and everybody had to see doctors from home and nobody could use transportation systems because we all needed to stay inside and be safe, it was like, oh, my God, we need to make this immediate shift. Let's make the world work for everybody. And so that was really the crux of ableism coming into our collective consciousness for one of the first times in modern memory, even if we didn't have the language, as I was saying, to articulate that. Yeah. And kind of sad that it took the pandemic to make these changes happen, you know, because they were, they were happening on behalf of the non-disabled people and the benefits that, that accrued to disabled people benefits that as you said, disabled people have been asking for, or is benefits the right word? You know what I'm saying? But just like these accessibility issues uh, that disabled people had been advocating for, you know, suddenly shifted as a result of this. It should not have taken that, I guess is my point. And not only that, but disabled people were still and are still at incredibly high risk because of the pandemic. And so as we were beginning to try to shift the world to work in new virtual ways, we were still throwing disabled people under the bus in ways like healthcare rationing, because even though this is unethical or unethical and also not really legal, according to guidance from federal agencies, 
doctors were making decisions about who to save, who to give life-saving care, who to put on that ventilator based on whether or not the person had a disability and basically saying, well, the disabled person's quality of life must be lower, so let's not save them. So there was that manifestation of ableism. And now on top of that, more people have become disabled because of COVID long haulers who are experiencing COVID and, you know, people who have not had access to the proper care that they needed because of COVID related barriers, it's created more disabilities. And so there's like this perpetual cycle of ableism that we tend not to think about, even though we're much more aware of it because it's now finally something that the news is talking about. Even if we're not calling it ableism, we can no longer deny that it's a reality. Yeah, I mean, just uh, just today, I saw a story in the New York Times that I was so excited to see because I've been waiting for it, which is a story about how uh, parents of disabled kids are having a terrible time with school. It's it's doubly stressful um, sending your kid into school, especially in states where the governors are crazy. And uh, oh, did I just use another word? I, I think I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know what to use. The, the governors are irresponsible and have not um, mandated mask wearing in schools. And so with our son, you know, I have to confess, I look around even at our friends and I'm like, man, you know, your kids are doing play dates indoors with big groups of kids and they're not vaccinated. And I'm like, I know that you're probably playing the math odds and you're not that worried about your child. But if your child gets COVID... And goes and gives it to, God forbid, some child with a, a immunity issue or a disability, you could kill that person. You could kill a child. Like, there's just so much resistance. People are just done. Like, there's a quote in this article, and I, I apologize for going off on a rant, but this article touched a nerve because we've been living with this, my wife and I, for the whole duration of this pandemic. And it's frustrating how little attention is paid to disabled kids, you know, in particular who could be affected by this. But there's a woman who says, you know, uh, something like, you know, people are just done with the pandemic, but the pandemic isn't done with us. And I need to underline that because I don't think, I, I think it's just very easy to slip into self-focus for some people anyway, and to forget how their actions or inactions could impact vulnerable people in particular. I'm glad you brought that article up because I actually saw it this morning too. And I was like, this is great. We need more coverage like this. We need more people speaking out and talking about how the fact that people who are playing around with the mask mandate are really playing around with other people's lives. It's not just a matter of how you feel about wearing a piece of cloth over your face. And we're not living in a post-pandemic world, like so many people are saying. Yes, in many ways, we are re-emerging. We are learning how to live with the pandemic. But at the same time, it's an absolute nightmare to be a disabled person and to be a loved one of a disabled person, a caregiver of a disabled person, and constantly worry about if you or that person are going to get sick because other people can't be bothered to wear cloth on their face 
or get a vaccine. It's And I know that I'm saying things that many people are going to find controversial here, but I will forever say that it is not controversial That's to right. ask people to protect the lives of others. That's right. Enough already. I'm so over it. Like, like what is it? Like uh, half the world has been vaccinated at this point or has received at least one shot. That's like three and a half billion people. Like we've got the data. The vaccines are safe. They're free, you know, in America anyway, they're free, they're available, they're a miracle. Like, let's just get on with it. The people who are uh, resisting this and who are like screaming at school board meetings, like, I don't know, I have zero patience uh, as a parent of a disabled child, but just as a human being, I have zero patience with this as a rational person. Like, come on, uh, like we shouldn't have to equivocate here. Like this is, uh, this is clear. And I think... I think what's been most frustrating to me and like troubling is the incredible resistance people have to common sense measures. And I get it. It does like circumscribe what you can do. You know, people just are sick of being confined and that's natural. You know, they don't want to be like housebound or they don't want to be having to parent all day long, <laughs> you know, like having to be stuck at home with your kids and, you know, it's much easier if your kids can go play with other kids. And I get that, but they can't be bothered to just have the kids play outside. The kids aren't wearing masks. It's, it's like these little things where I'm like, man, you really are just like, you're kind of freelancing. You're making up your own rules and like, you're putting other people at risk. And I say this, like, these are people I know, uh, it, it frustrates me. <laughs> I relate, you know, every time I, I see people who are completely flouting basic safety online, it really frustrates me because these are people that I care about. So not only am I worried about myself and the people around them, but I'm worried about them too. They're not worried about themselves, but I'm worried about them. And also you brought up an interesting point. You know, people are, are sick of being inside, right? But a lot of disabled people have also been saying, hello, you are now learning what it is like to have limitations placed upon you that you didn't ask for. And that comes in the form of, you know, inaccessible buildings or a lack of accessible transportation or a lack of paying attention to planning things inclusively when it comes to bringing disabled people into the fold. And so we're like, yeah. We already know what this is like. We already get what this isolation is like and what this being pushed to the wayside is like. And now you're experiencing it and you don't like it so much. Right. Right. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the fold. And, and uh, you know, a little bit more about ableism. Um, I think one of the things that you write about in the book so well and that needs to be underscored is the kind of embedded attitude in ableist thinking that disabled people don't have full lives and this needs to be dispelled a hundred percent and i think there's two layers to this first of all we need to examine our understanding of a full life because we can have incredibly ableist views of what it means to have a full life we tend to assume that your life is full if you are doing certain things like holding down a job or maintaining a busy social calendar or, you know, getting married, 
right? These are things that we tend to think of as a full life. And so we, first of all, assume that disabled people don't have full lives if they don't do these things. But then on the flip side of that, we assume that they can't do these things. And so it's sort of this paradoxical way of thinking about it because we're ableist in two ways. First of all, in our definition of a full life and second of all, in our assumptions that disabled people can't have whatever a full life means to them. And so I really challenge people to think about how what makes their life full may not look like what makes somebody else's life full. And also think about what it means to value the humanity of a person based on what their life looks like. Is somebody who is married and working a high paying job on Wall Street somehow a more valuable human being than somebody who is unable to hold down traditional employment, but maybe doing incredible creative things with their time using adaptive technology, right? But we assume that the person who's making the money and holding the high-powered job is living the fuller life and is a more valuable human being. That's kind of a messed up way of thinking. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, wealth, like equating wealth with value is, uh, it's like the heart of the American system. And I think it makes a lot of us miserable, frankly. I think so too. And it's hard because I recognize that we operate in a capitalist society and I recognize that we connect worth and productivity. But I cannot stress enough that a disabled person is a whole human being simply because they are a human being. Nobody needs to prove their worth to you. Nobody needs to prove that their life is worth living. So another issue uh, related to ableism that you bring up is the way that disabled people are often unseen or excluded from conversations uh, that implicate them. And one of the examples that really struck me was um, with regard to Time's Up um, and how there's no mention of disabled people, or at least at the time of publication. I don't know if it has since changed, but you just talk a little bit about that particular, or I mean, it's that organization, but it's really the the larger issue and how it impacts disabled people. You know, last I checked, I do think that they have someone who associates with a disability organization as part of their work, but it's pretty striking that we don't consider disability an identity that needs to be included when we talk about the impact of things like Time's Up, when we talk about the impact of things like sexual assault and sexual harassment. We make so many assumptions about disability. We assume that disabled people are asexual, which they certainly can be, but disability and asexuality do not go hand in hand. You can just happen to be an asexual disabled person. We assume that disabled people are not in our workplaces being affected by these things. We make so many assumptions that thereby lead us to exclude disabled people from these incredibly needed conversations when in fact disabled people are three times more likely to experience some kind of sexual violence than non-disabled people. And so we cannot 
overlooked disability when we're talking about other social justice issues. And to your broader point about disabled people not being at the table in conversations that are relevant to us, there's a saying that I mention later in the book, nothing about us without us which is a mantra of so many in the disability community. And that's simply to say that if you are doing something that is related to disability, don't do it without us at the table. But there's kind of another layer to this, which is that disability is the only identity that can cut across any and all other identities. And we're the largest minority in the world. There's 1.3 billion disabled people. So... Actually, every issue is a disability issue because every issue affects disabled people. Right, right. I think like, you know, there there are really broad ways of thinking about disability. You say it's the largest minority group in the world, but in a way, everybody, I, I, yeah, everybody who's born a baby experiences some level of disability if you can think about it that way, right? When you're a baby, you are reliant uh, on help for movement and do you know what I'm saying? Like, and then as you get older, yeah. at some point you're going to experience at least some level of disability if you um, age and your physical capabilities deteriorate. So I think it's a useful way for non-disabled people to understand disability and to feel in a very real way, a sense of connection to it. Like it's, it's, it affects us yeah. all. There's a phrase that I talk about in the book and it is temporarily able-bodied and not everybody likes that phrase, but the reality is that the disability community is the only community that anyone can join at any time. And I don't say that in a threatening way. It's not a threat. It's just a reality. And so I always ask people, why wouldn't you want to make a world that is more accessible so that if tomorrow you wake up and you're the one experiencing disability, the world would be more welcoming for you too. But on top of that, we also don't seem to be conscious of the fact that accessibility and inclusivity makes the world better for everybody, regardless of whether you identify as disabled or not. There's another thing that I talk about a little bit, which is the curb cut effect, which is essentially saying that not everybody can step up a curb, but everybody can use a curb cut. So whether you are a wheelchair user, a parent with a stroller, a person pushing a laundry cart, somebody rolling your luggage, somebody on a skateboard or roller skates, whatever the case may be, curb cuts work for everybody. So why not just make more curb cuts, literally and figuratively, so that the world will work better for everyone, regardless of your disability status? Yeah, that's like common sense. It should be common sense. It should be. It's not yet, but I'm really hopeful that we're getting there. Okay, so I want to now talk about language as promised, because this is uh, an area of particular fascination for me. It's also an area of particular consternation for me, not only because I feel myself implicated over and over again, I've been implicated so far in this conversation, but for using words that are ableist. And uh, I also, if I'm being honest with you, because this kind of ableist language is so deeply embedded into the common vernacular and to the culture, 
I feel a sense of frustration because I'm like, well, what word do I use? Like I've got it. Like it's going to require me to like, what, what do I yell at people in traffic in Los Angeles? <laughs> you know, when they cut me <laughs> off, <laughs> you know? So, but I, I do want to go through, I want to go through some words because some of them might surprise some people listening as you know, some of these words, I, I paused for a second and I was like, oh, wow. You know, I didn't realize this one too is implicated in ableism. But, you know, the obvious one is what you kind of call uh, euphemistically the R word. I think that's a good place to start because, you know, I'm Generation X. Growing up, it was incredibly common. It's still common for people to use it. You know, there's a lot of different ways we sort of use it casually and it's got to stop. So, I mean, it's, it's a word too, I should admit, that after the birth of my son and his diagnoses, when people say the R word, even if they're just like, oh my God, this thing that happened to me at work today was so R, it hurts my heart. And I, I think it, uh, it's something that has to stop. So let's just talk about that one since it's such a big one. I'm glad you brought that up because the R word is my deal breaker and quite honestly, a deal breaker for most disabled people. That tends to be the one where I have the least amount of tolerance Right. Because it is just so incredibly upsetting and harmful, and you are directly using disability as a derogatory word. I mean, or using disability to be derogatory, I should say. And that is such a harmful thing to perpetuate. But it happens all the time. And there have been many times where it has really stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I have some very good friends who have used the word. I had a friend who literally invited me to give a talk about disability uh, for a class that she was teaching and used the word just it rolled out of her mouth in front of her students. And I was like, I just, I did not know what to do with myself. I mean, I, I called her out gently about it and I said, Hey, like, especially if we're talking about disability. That's not a great word to use. But I get very worked up over the R word because at this point, I think our collective consciousness really needs to shift away from thinking that it's acceptable to use disability related terminology as an insult. Right. And the word handicapped, too, is a word that you would prefer to see not used. Handicapped to me is not offensive. It's not something that I am going to get upset if you use in the same way that I would if you used the R word, for example. But what frustrates me about handicapped is that it just feels outdated. Some people prefer it, but for me, I am all about just saying the word disabled. Just say it. Just say what you mean. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Good to know. And I'm glad. I mean, I appreciate your patience because I am going to go through, I want to go through words because I don't think, it, I don't think the conversation is going to change unless we have this conversation. Um, like, Let's have this conversation. I love talking about this. And I also give the caveat that if you use one of these words, in your regular vocabulary, if you make a mistake, you know, I'm not here to hold it against you or judge. I'm just here to kind of guide you in the direction of doing better because I am also a person who lives in a heavily trafficked place. And when I'm driving, 
I want to yell some words too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, the ones like there's, you know, I was going to get to this, but the word uh, moron, imbecile, crazy, these are words that might slip out of my mouth when I'm driving in like freeway traffic in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's a relearning process. I've got to find, <laughs> got to find some, some better words to shout when somebody cuts me off or whatever, but <laughs> you know, it's hard. And I think it's hard for a lot of us and you know, that has to be acknowledged, but you have to sort of understand the roots of these words and how a lot of them have a history in discrimination which is what makes them ableist and which what is what makes them offensive to people. Other words, like like the one that was underscored to me actually by somebody on Twitter uh, years ago is I called something lame on Twitter and a person commented and they were like, oh, that's an ableist thing to say. And I'd never considered it, if I'm being honest. It was such, such a common word in my youth and, you know, growing up, it, it was just part of the fabric. And then I stopped and thought about it and I was like, oh my God, yeah. And there are plenty of disabled people who actually could not care less about if you're using terms like these. They would much rather you focus on things like actual access than changing your language. So I just want to clarify that, you know, not everybody is as attuned to these conversations about language. I know plenty of disabled people who say things like lame and crazy, uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of people who experience immense amounts of pain when they hear these words because they were leveraged against them simply because they're disabled. They were used as derogatory because they're disabled. And so when you think about it from that context, if you're a decent person who doesn't want to hurt anyone, you know, shifting your language seems like a small thing to do in order to prevent somebody else from bringing back up years of harm by having these words thrown at them. And so I'm, I'm still in an unlearning process as well when it comes to avoiding these words and finding alternatives. But I cannot stress enough the importance of at least thinking about how ableism slips into our everyday language because you'll realize how much perpetuates our stigmatizing and negative thinking about disability as a whole. Yeah. And I, I've said this before on the show many times and even recently as a person who is very concerned with language, as I keep saying, and, and a guy who does a podcast that is similar, uh, has similar concerns. It's never, it can never be said enough how like powerful words are. Um, these turns of phrase like paralyzed by fear, using it as a crutch talking about like, as I did earlier in this conversation, when someone's blind to something, uh, the term fell on deaf ears, you know, even these turns of phrase, which are so normalized in our culture that they uh, seem innocuous, you know, you have to consider, well, what about being a deaf person reading somebody write like it fell on deaf ears? Like, how does that feel to them to read that? Yeah. And people call me nitpicky for this all the time. I mean, truly, there are people who tell me that I just need to shut up and stop talking about this because they think that it's only serving to further alienate people. But the reality is language is how we communicate. It shapes how we think and how we think 
shapes how we talk. This is a point that I try to make early on in the book. And so if we're not literally breaking down how we're engaging with other people and thinking about other people, then how can we even begin to shift the narrative in any other areas of life? Yeah. And, you know, you talk too. like these are uh, I'm going to give some more phrases that are very common, I think, in especially in conversation, like quit being so OCD. Uh, this person is acting super autistic or saying like she is so bipolar. These are things I hear, you know, people talking or at least I have heard. I don't know if I hear them super often, but, you know, like it's uh, again, it's worth flagging them because. It happens so fast and so often and is kind of so normal that most people don't realize the implications. Somebody's diagnosis and somebody's reality suddenly becomes somebody else's really quick, thoughtless turn of phrase. And we don't really think about the weight of that very often. But if you are leveraging a term like, oh, you're acting autistic or, you know, you're acting bipolar, what if that person actually is autistic or bipolar? Like, you're literally insulting them for who they are. And you're saying that it's a bad thing that they are a certain way. You're implying that acting a certain way, acting as a disabled person is in and of itself a bad thing. And I think, I think some people might respond and say, well, you know, it's just a joke. I'm just joking with my friend and I get it. Like I have a pretty wide tolerance when it comes to humor, uh, and joking, but I think a good rule of thumb when it comes to humor, um, is like the old phrase, like, don't, don't punch down, punch up. Like when people make jokes at the expense of people with disabilities, that's like what I would consider punching down is that an okay phrase you know what i mean like you, you... yeah yeah i think i think punching down but i think we have to ask ourselves you know is it that we see disabled people as less than which would make it punching down or we see them as kind of these like delicate flowers in need of pity and protection or is it that it's punching down because you're denying someone's humanity you know so i think it's kind of a matter of thinking about why we are avoiding jokes about disability or why we should be avoiding jokes about disability. But also I, a disabled person am the first one to make jokes about disability too. my own, not other people's, but I want to be very clear that people who think that I'm being bitter and humorless and nitpicky about language just haven't actually heard me in my day-to-day -day life when I'm letting the disabled jokes fly. So I have a sense of humor about my disability. I just don't want to hurt anybody in the process. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think there are ways that even a non-disabled person could tell a joke that involves disability that would be perfectly inbounds and funny. Um, I think when I talk about punching up or punching down, it, it's, you know, there's the issue of denying somebody's humanity. I think it's also about uh, power imbalance. That's really what I think I mean. You know, if you're you're constantly like telling jokes that are, you know, trained on people who have traditionally been on the wrong end of the, the power balance. That's not, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I the just way think... that you're framing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's absolutely about power dynamics. When you, a non-disabled person are making a joke about disability and in many cases in a professional context might be profiting off of it 
profiting off it, that is definitely punching down. Like one example that I talked about in the book is that there's a comedian who did a special where he used the R word in a joke and, you know, the CEO of Netflix was like, Oh, no big deal. He was just being a comedian. Like, no, that's a big deal. You didn't have to do that. You could have picked another word. Right. Right. And I mean, like, yeah, I, I think like as a society, we have to get to the point where doing those kinds of jokes is just like verboten and, and just like unfunny. Yeah. And I hope people don't think we're being so didactic and prescriptive here. I hope that people really realize the power of language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like as I read the book it's not the easiest stuff to confront. And I'm sure there's some of that for people listening because you're kind of going through all these words and the ways you'd communicate and you have to, you know, it, it initiates a process of change. And I think it's like the discomfort that I feel is counterbalanced by the fact that like, actually the changes really aren't that huge. Um, I think maybe what more of the discomfort is for me is like the, the shame and like the, oh God, like I didn't, all this time I've been you know, like walking through my life saying all these things and, you know, not realizing that I could have been hurting somebody. So it's a complicated emotional soup, but I think it's necessary to like ventilate this stuff and, and to bring it out into the open and uh, like let people reckon with it. And it's funny because... I've made the the classic new author mistake of reading some reviews of my book and I read one that said I was in no way radical enough and that I wrote the book to sort of kowtow to non-disabled people and make them feel better about themselves but the reality is that I tried to strike a balance between being firm but gentle because if I'm immediately angry at you for saying these things or for making these mistakes, you're not going to want to listen to what I have to say and we're going to get nowhere. If I'm firm and I say this is not okay, also I don't think you are an inherently bad person because you have done this. Let's work on changing it together. I think that's how we're going to make change. And so, yeah, there's going to be some discomfort to sit with from this book. But my hope is not that you are so uncomfortable that you're completely driven away from the conversation. My hope is that you'll sit with that discomfort. And I, I mean the royal you, you know, will sit with that discomfort and realize, hey, there's something I can do about this. I don't have to be uncomfortable. And I can also make the world better and more comfortable for other people in the process. And when you think about it that way, that's how we're going to begin to create change. I think that a lot of time activism happens in a vacuum where we're not actually reaching the people who we need to be having the conversations with. And so this is my overture, my olive branch, my way of saying, hey, I'm ready to talk to you about this. Right, right. So I'm not going to get to, I'm not going to do all these, but I am going to do some of the bigger ones because I think it would be useful for listeners. But there's kind of a section where you break down like what to say, and like what not to say. And so one of the ones you say, you know, you say disability, disabled person with a disability or disabled person, this is preferred. In the vast majority of cases, yes. So this is hard because this is where I get prescriptive in the book and there are some people who will disagree with me. But most disabled people really do 
cringe at hearing euphemistic terminology like special needs or differently abled or physically or mentally challenged or handicapped, right? We're using all these as phrases to make ourselves feel better and to dance around actually saying the word disability because we've been socialized to see disability as something that is bad, as negative, as a dirty word, basically. And so the most popular line of thinking right now among at least the disabled people that I engage with and learn from is that disability is not a dirty word. Say the word and embrace the word and recognize that for so many people, it covers a culture, a community, an identity. It's not meant to be derogatory. There are people who prefer differently abled or special needs and refer to themselves as such. And my job is not to tell those people not to make that personal choice. My job is to respect it. But more broadly, if you're talking about disability, it's okay to say that. And then uh, other, like another what to say versus what not to say. On the what to say side of the ledger, neurodivergent person with autism or autistic person person with cognitive disability, uh, a cognitively disabled person, a person with an intellectual dis uh, disability or an intellectually disabled person, person with a learning disability or a learning disabled person. These are preferred terms in your view versus things like mentally challenged, mentally handicapped, mentally retarded, slow, special ed, like, you know, those kinds of turns of phrase not appreciated. Those can be really harmful labels to put on somebody. When you call somebody special ed, I mean, think about that. Think about how that would follow a student for the rest of their lives. Whereas if you say that somebody has a cognitive disability, a learning disability, an intellectual disability, it's a reality. It's part of who they are. And it's something that we can support and accommodate. Why is that so hard? I honestly think it's because we have been taught that disability is something to look down upon. So no one has given this amount of thought in a lot of settings where we use this terminology to the harm that we're causing. And I think that if we all slowed down a little bit in our communication and took some time to recognize that these are not just words, but these are words that impact people then we'd be getting somewhere. So another breakdown that I want to go through is with regard to uh, a person who uses a wheelchair. That's, an, a, that's a preferred term or a wheelchair user versus wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair. I'm sure you've had experience with this in your life. That's my personal language pet peeve. And also one that I did not add in the book, but one that I know some people use is wheelchair rider as well. Really, the point is that it's the person who is in charge of the wheelchair, not the wheelchair who is in charge of the person. And so when we talk about being bound to a wheelchair or confined to a wheelchair, I mean, I'm envisioning somebody who has ropes and chains around them and is tied up to their wheelchair and is stuck there. That's what wheelchair bound means to me. And my wheelchair is not confining. It's literally my source of freedom and my source of mobility. I would be confined without my wheelchair. And in terms of 
assuming that I am confined to a wheelchair because I'm unable to walk, what's actually confining to me is the inaccessibility of so many environments around me that don't allow me to navigate with my wheelchair. But my wheelchair in and of itself is not something that is confining or binding me. Hmm. And then uh, another one that struck me was accessible parking. I have to cop to the fact that my wife and I often say like the handicap placards, we know they're hanging on our car or handicap parking, but accessible parking is just more contemporary and preferred. But what I also like about it is that it speaks to what it's really about. I see people like non-disabled people parking in handicap spots all the time now, because of course I'm tuned into it and it, uh, makes me crazy. Like, or sorry, I shouldn't say the word crazy, but it makes me, <laughs> makes me upset. <laughs> and, You're uh, modeling for people, alternative words that they can use. So I think this is great. Yeah. This is live on air learning. I'm trying, I'm trying, like bear with me, but I'm trying. And I go to this car wash where like you go through the car wash and then afterwards, you know, people will vacuum out their cars and there's a disabled or a accessible parking spot. Almost always there is somebody parked there who is non-disabled vacuuming their car. Like there's like, it's no big deal. I sometimes go to this car wash with my son and would love to have more room, you know, because I need to get him out and hold on to him while I'm trying to vacuum or I can't do it. And so far I haven't been the guy to like get out of the car and, you know, dress them down, but I kind of feel like I should. It's just very frustrating. Just don't park in accessible parking if you're not uh, disabled or caregiving for a disabled person. I can't believe I even have to say that, but. Yeah, this one is a, a stressful one for me too, because, you know, on the one hand, I try to not assume just by looking at someone that they don't need a spot. But if you don't have that placard or if you don't have a license plate with the symbol on it, then I'm assuming you don't need that spot. You know, I mean, I'm looking for visible proof, not in the person, but in the placard. Yeah. Or in the license plate right. that they belong in that spot. And yeah, also, I mean, honestly, I still say handicap parking and handicap restroom all the time because I'm used to saying that and it kind of rolls out of my mouth without me thinking about it. But you're right that accessible really gets to the heart of what it is. It's accessible. It is accessible to disabled people. The mm. spot itself is not handicapped. <laughs> right. Right. So I want to add, I want to talk, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but I think it's worth underlining here is the issue of intersectionality and disabled people. Like you talked about being a white person who is disabled and you know how that, impacts your experience of the world. And then I was reading in your book about Darcy Neal, who is black and queer and has uh, cerebral palsy. And there was an anecdote in your book about Darcy talking about how people commonly asked when he was shot, right? Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Yes, you are. And it's just people that... made an assumption just by looking at him that he must have become disabled because of violence. Right. And, you know, so there's like, like, it's just like, it's just worth, um, it's worth recognizing that, you know, the disabled community is not a monolith and there are a lot of people who exist 
at these intersections between like a disabled person, a black person, um, a queer person. Uh, there's a million, you know, there's different um, combinations, obviously, but all of these different interstices, is that the right word? <laughs> you know, they carry with them their own set of implications and identifications. And, you know, I think when it comes to issues like discrimination or barriers to finding a job, for example, you know, there might be a white person with a disability who comes up against a certain amount of resistance from employers, just to use that as an example, but somebody who is uh, black and disabled would probably have, or could potentially have a more difficult time, you know, finding employment. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I think that was a balance I tried to strike while writing the book is acknowledging that even though I am marginalized in that I'm disabled, I also come to this conversation with many layers of privilege. I'm a white woman. I am, you know, solidly middle class. I am heterosexual. I am cisgender, you know, meaning that I identify as the gender that I was assigned at birth. I'm a female. And so even though I am disabled, there is still so much about my experiences that are not the same as the experiences of other people who have different marginalized identities than my own and who exist at the nexus of multiple marginalized identities. And so that's something that we really need to be mindful of when we're talking about disability. There are people within the disability community who experience not just ableism, but racism, not just ableism, but transphobia, not just ableism, but xenophobia, right? Ableism doesn't exist in a vacuum and disabled people aren't only one identity. So we have to take that into account when thinking about disability, because as I said before, it's the only identity that cuts across any and all other identities. That means that the disability community in and of itself holds every single other identity that there is to have. And so if we're just talking about the white male wheelchair user we are missing so much of the disability experience. Hmm. And I want to ask you now about communication with disabled people, like non-disabled people talking to disabled people, how there can sometimes be discomfort, faux pas, to say the, you know, to put it mildly. And there's a rule of thumb that you offer in the book, which I think is useful. And I'll read it to you. It's that if you would not ask a non-disabled person the same question in the same context, don't ask. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that because, you know, you've been on the receiving end of some pretty insensitive uh, comments and questions in your life, I'm sure. And you talk about some of them. There's one that you describe, I think, where people like on elevators will just blurt out, like, can you walk? <laughs> you know, like... How are you supposed to answer that on an elevator? But, you know, I think that there is social, like people are socially awkward oftentimes just as a general thing. And then 
I know this from experience, like the wanting, like feeling emotionally activated and wanting to not discriminate and wanting to engage. Like people can come at you, I imagine, with the best of intentions and still screw it up. And so I think what I'd love to have is a, a conversation here around just some basic guidelines so that people can get more comfortable with how to communicate with disabled people and people who have possibly like noticeable physical differences from them or that kind of thing. Talking about interacting with disabled people is always a challenge because every disabled person is different and the way that you interact with one disabled person may not be the same way that you interact with another one. But in terms of a rule of thumb, what I mean when I say, you know, don't ask a disabled person something that you wouldn't ask a non-disabled person in the same context really comes down to what do you need to know? Are you being nosy and are you being invasive and are you trying to satiate your own curiosity or are you genuinely asking a question that has a reason behind you asking? And is that reason useful or helpful in any context? And I recognize that there are, if I think hard enough about it, areas that fall outside of this rule of thumb. So that's why it's a general rule and not the answer for every single interaction with disabled people. But generally, if you can keep your comment to yourself, if you can keep your invasive question to yourself, do it. And also, I have a video that I collaborated on with Microsoft, actually. They were doing a campaign called Simple Things Count. And so I did a disability etiquette type video about just acting naturally and being yourself when engaging with disabled people. So uh, we can pop that in the show notes, maybe just as sort of a, a supplement to this conversation, if you'd like. But I think that the problem non-disabled people run into the most is we tend to overthink how I say we, I'm, I'm not non-disabled, but non-disabled people tend to overthink how to interact with disabled people. And a lot of it really just comes down to act natural, act like you usually would. No need to go out of the way to act differently, but also no need to, you know, be weird. Well, and I would also say uh, something that you mentioned in the book, which is talk directly to people with disabilities. Yes. Never, ever assume that a disabled person cannot in some way communicate about themselves and their needs. Communication may look different for different people, but that's okay. That still doesn't mean that we should talk over or talk around or not direct what we're saying to an actual disabled person. Yeah. Like there are little like bits of etiquette about like introducing yourself. If you're speaking to a blind person, making sure you say your name so they know who's speaking to them, just common courtesy, but something that could easily, I think, um, be overlooked or, you know, not recognized by a, a non-disabled person. Or if you're speaking to a person who's deaf, uh, who has an interpreter, to look at the the deaf person instead of looking at the interpreter when you're talking. Like these are just little, like, uh, you know, just little behaviors, like kind of s small behaviors that make a big difference. Yeah, and I think that it's easy to get overwhelmed by 
matters of etiquette, but what it comes down to is think about it from your own perspective. If somebody had something to say to you, but they talked to somebody that you were with, wouldn't you be bothered by that? If somebody wanted to ask you a question, but they asked somebody that you were with, wouldn't you be bothered by that? Or if somebody commented on your appearance unnecessarily, wouldn't you be bothered by that? Right. Right. Well, I don't want to take up all of your afternoon, but I do want to close by talking uh, just to close as your book closes. We didn't get to everything in it. People should read it. But I think, uh, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, it's great to end by talking about allyship, how to be an ally, how to be an accomplice. Like, I want people listening to have some sense of, like, how to how to take action, you know, like useful action and how to make sure to align with disabled people and help to like, not to sound ridiculous, but to create a better world. So you just talk a little bit about how non-disabled people can think about being an ally and being an accomplice. See, I don't think that sounds ridiculous at all. I mean, maybe, uh, it's a, a little bit rose colored glasses of me, but I do believe that we can create a better world by being more mindful and by being allies to one another. And in terms of allyship, the most important thing that I want to remind people of is that allyship is an action. It's a verb. It is something that you do. It is not something that you can just bestow upon yourself as a title. You know, if you held the door for a disabled person or if you corrected an ableist term that you use, that doesn't really mean that you get a a gold ally star that day. And it doesn't really mean that you get to say, I was a good ally today, you know, and uh, I'm done for the year now. I, I did allyship. I'm done. And I think that people fall into that trap too much. Um, allyship is an ongoing and evolving learning process and some of the best ways that you can be an ally to disabled people is quite simply by knowing when it is your turn to step back and listen, when it is your turn to amplify disabled people who are speaking out, speaking up and doing the work and knowing when to pay disabled people for their work, knowing when to recognize that you are asking of labor for disabled people, and also recognizing how you can play a role in bringing disabled people to the table. You know, I think that we feel so often, and this goes for everybody, that allyship can be an incredibly overwhelming process and not something that is easy, so therefore we shy away from it. But sometimes it really looks like taking a look at the table figurative or literal and saying who's missing from this table why are they missing from this table is the table not accessible do we need to build a ramp to the table you know do we need captioning for the conversation at the table and i I say this a little bit in jest but it's also true you know what can you do to bring the right people to the table and then the next question is always well how do i know who the right people are Well, sometimes it's just a matter of recognizing that we exist in our own little bubbles and we're not looking outside ourselves. But the further reading and resources section at the back of my book is 
one starting point for beginning to acquaint yourself with multiple disability perspectives, not all disability perspectives, but certainly enough that you will begin to recognize ways that you can really meaningfully incorporate disability and a consciousness of disability and accessibility and inclusivity into your daily practices. Well, that feels like a great place to end. Uh, I have so enjoyed this conversation. You're a superb guest and I appreciate your book and the work that you do. It has certainly helped me out and I'm just getting started really. I've got a lot to to learn. And like you say, it's an evolving thing. Like I feel like I'm going to be learning about this for the rest of my days, but, um, you know, I'm off and running and, uh, just appreciate the conversation and wish you well. Thank you. I've, I've loved being here and I'm also so grateful that you were willing to engage so openly and thoughtfully and also to share of yourself, your personal connection to this, because I don't think we recognize that, Statistically speaking, there's a pretty good chance that this podcast is relevant to everybody in some way. Awesome. Well, it's it's great to meet you. Thank you so much once again. Thank you for having me. Okay, there we go. That is Emily Ladau, and her book is called Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. It's available now from 10 Speed Press. You can find Emily all over the internet. She's at emilyladow.com. She's on Twitter at Emily underscore Ladow. And you can find her on Instagram. Her handle there is at Emily Ladow. One more time, the book is called Demystifying Disability. Go get your copy. You can read it in a sitting. It will teach you so much. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? This entire podcast, the entire archive, is available to you, the listener, free of charge. It is a listener-supported show. If you like this show, if you listen regularly and you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. You can support this show. There are different tiers. There are different levels as you move up the scale. You can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. Come on, people. Support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is now on YouTube. This has happened over the past year. It's a relatively recent development. If you are a YouTube person, subscribe to the Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel. It's free. Every episode is there on YouTube. Subscribe. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. The Other People app is a thing. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. I should say, too, that the app has been undergoing some maintenance. If you already have the app, delete it and re-upload it, and uh, it'll be all set. <laughs>